Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and uh, welcome back to the New Books Network. This is the Science, Technology, and Society podcast. I am here today with Dr. Thomas Haig with his new book, A New History of Modern Computing, uh, from MIT Press in uh, 2021. And Dr. Thomas Haig is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the Comenius Visiting Professor at Segan University. He has been researching the history of computing for more than 20 years and is the past chair of SIGCIS, the Group for Historians of Information Technology. He is the lead author with Mark Presley and Crispin Rope of the ENIAC in Action, Making and Remaking the Modern Computer, about the design, construction, and use of the first general purpose programmable electronic computer, the ENIAC. His new book with Paul Ceruzzi, which we're talking about today, is The New History of Modern Computing. And hello. Uh, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Glad to be here, Austin. So I, my, my first question for you is, is what's new? Why is, uh, why is the history a new history? Oh, well, Paul Ceruzzi uh, wrote a book called A History of Modern Computing back in the late 90s. And that's also the same time period where the other major scholarly overview history of computing, uh, Computer, by uh, Martin Campbell Kelly and William Asprey were written. So Paul uh, had lightly revised his book in the early 2000s, basically with an extra chapter. But the core of his book and of the other major history, Computer, really dated to the mid-90s. And obviously, a lot has happened in computing since then. So, you know, I mean, he, the original book by Paul Ceruzzi began around 1945 with uh, ENIAC and the first commercial computers, the UNIVAC machines. So when he was writing in the mid 90s, his history really ran in detail through the mid 80s. So he had, you know, about 40 years of history to cover. Uh, at this point, we've got obviously uh, another uh, 35 years or so on top of that. And also there's just been a whole load of new scholarship. So when Paul was writing, many of the things he was writing about had not been looked at by professional historians. There tends to be a period when something is really hot, right? Like right now in STS, uh, I think the only way to get hired is to be working on the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, so you get something like everybody pours into it. Then there's a period where something is not hot anymore and everyone ignores it. And then eventually historians come along and start picking up the pieces and rearranging them differently and getting some kind of historical understanding on what was going on. But it's usually a couple of decades before historians really get to grips with things. So it's not just that there's been a lot of stuff happened that hasn't been written about really at all in the earlier scholarly histories, like smartphones, web-based applications, mobile computing, um, modern video games, um, all those kinds of technological developments. But even with the earlier things, that added historical distance means that there's now a great deal of good work by scholars that hadn't previously been integrated into this kind of big picture overview history. Yeah, I, I, I really like the, the characterization. Uh, you know, of course, I've always there's always kind of a lot of research in, in one area, but then there's the kind of looking back and um, trying to pick up the pieces. And 
Yeah. So, you know, I'm a historian, so I get interested in things just as, you know, everybody else has completely lost interest in them. Yeah, no, I mean, I think so, you know, I want to start with with this book by um, by kind of, you know, leading into why this sort of history is is really interesting to think about um, across disciplines. Um, and I want to lean into that before we, we dive into the book a little bit. And and in particular, what I think is really interesting is is I want to start with your the last chapter in this book, actually, and work my way backwards. Um, you know, the, so the last chapter of this book, if 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 I recall, the the title is uh, the title is something like well, one of the last ones: "The computer is everywhere and nowhere." Which uh, you know, this type of phrase, and of course, is is quite rampant in STS scholarship. Um, could you maybe tell us just just a little bit about this kind of everywhere and nowhere of of computers? And, and you know, I'm thinking about the transition of you know, it's not that we don't have mainframes anymore, right? It's it's just that the way in which we've interacted with these objects has shifted. Sure. So there's a kind of continuity through a lot of the book, which in in large part is a history of the computer as a technology. Now, obviously, there's never just been one computer or even one kind of computer. So it's kind of a conceit, you know, to talk about the computer. But but there is this kind of coherence there. Um, so from ENIAC in the 40s onwards, there's the idea that the computer is a general purpose programmable box. Um, theoretical computer scientists would say it's equivalent to a Turing machine in that it's programmable and general purpose. So you can make it do different things. Right. You've got a classic kind of PC. It can run the video game Doom or it can run a spreadsheet program or it can run custom code. It can do all kinds of things. So the computer is a box. Um, originally, it has switches and lights and maybe a tape drive and a printer or a punch card reader. Eventually, it gets floppy disks, it gets hard disks, it gets smaller, it gets video screens. But you've got kind of a continuity there of things that are recognizably computers. Uh, if you go to a computer museum, like the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley, you can have that parade, you know, over the course of half an hour of like walking fairly briskly through the exhibit, you can see the boxes get smaller and um, the dynamics of how they were used and so on change. Uh, and in a large part, our book is the history of that technology. But there's another history as well that today, most of us, at least before the pandemic, uh, had been using the devices that we thought of computers as computers less. Uh, so sales of desktops and laptops had peaked about a decade ago and until the lockdown had actually been dropping. On the other hand, sales of smartphones, of tablets, um, of things that people who aren't computer scientists don't even think of as being computers uh, were increasing massively. So your flat screen television is a computer, right? It's, it's running code. It's got a processor inside. It's got a thing. You know, it's just as much of a computer as your laptop. It's just got a different input device. Uh, my little Fitbit here is a computer. Most of the computers around us are basically invisible. Uh, a car might have 100 different computers inside it. I mean, each of the airbags has got a little computer in. Um, a computer that has remote entry is going to have a computer in each of the doors next to the handles and so on. So the vast majority of computers in the world, maybe 98, 99% of them, are embedded systems 
that hide inside other devices that we don't even think of as being computers. So on the one hand, the computer is more ubiquitous than ever. Um, but on the other hand, both because of those embedded devices and because of the fact that most people don't think of their phone or their television as being a computer, in a sense, it seemed like a good time to write a history of the computer because it seemed like the end of the idea of the computer is that general purpose box with a keyboard and switches and lights uh, has actually started to come into focus and we can get a little bit more of a historical distance on that evolution from the 1940s through the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, it's on the one hand, you know, your your comment was almost chilling in the sense of, of the the way in which we often use the word computer doesn't really map onto the sheer number of computers around you at any given time. And and it's it's actually quite shocking, as as I think anyone listening to to kind of your description would would hear of just how ubiquitous computers have become and how they've moved to becoming embedded and almost specialized as compared to the general type systems that you would see um, throughout, I would even say, you know, the 40s all the way up, right? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, nobody um, that I've ever heard of has, you know, whipped out their phone to check their email or text or, you know, do anything with it. Any of the thousands of different things that we all do all the time with these devices and said, oh, I need to do some computing. Right. I mean, a computer scientist thinks of that as being part of computing, but ordinary people really don't. Yeah. And I, I and I, I think that this is a very interesting sort of shift, right? Because you have on the one hand, the rise of personal computing um, throughout the kind of 2000s, 2010s, and then the decline. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, you know, full disclosure to the audience, I am also a computer scientist, so it's, it's, you know, easy for me to imagine, but at the same time, it's, it's really quite visceral how, um, how computing has sort of changed and, and no one really knows they're computing anymore. Um, yeah. Now the pandemic did change that a bit. You know, if you remember webcams were pretty much impossible to buy, there was a surge in the sales of laptops and so on. So that kind of general purpose device that has a bit more processor power and um, more flexibility in terms of input devices and so on has made something of a comeback. But in the long term, I mean, if I knew what was coming next, then, you know, obviously I wouldn't be wasting my time writing books. But the, the, t the core affordances of the technology have been fairly consistent. And everyone would say Moore's Law, but it actually begins before that. Um, in the article that I wrote about the book and communications of the ACM that I know you saw, uh, readers, you can find that by Googling Becoming Universal. There's this great picture posed in 1962 at the Ballistics Research Lab. And that's before anyone is using chips, um, but it's just the same board with one decimal digit of storage from four computers that have been installed there at the Ballistics Research Lab. The first one was ENIAC, and that took, uh, I believe, 26 vacuum tubes to store one decimal digit. Then the next machine, so that, that lady has got her arms fully extended and is a little bit, you know, wilting under the weight of a digit of storage. Um, the next woman is holding something that's significantly smaller. The one after that, it's still vacuum tubes, but they've been miniaturized and improved. And then the one on the end is holding a little board with a few transistors on. And all that is the prehistory of Moore's Law. Then those transistors get integrated onto circuits um, that we know as chips. 
the chips start out with you know a handful of transistors on, then dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions. Um, so that dynamic continues. But that core technological development is in no way determining what kind of device gets built around those things. It opens technological possibilities, but it doesn't dictate whether they get turned into mainframes or supercomputers or Fitbits or desktops or laptops. Um, some things become technologically or economically viable. So at some point, even this like now iconic smartphone is going to be replaced by something else. And uh, all I can do is offer the obvious observation that given that a lot of people are used to wearing watches and glasses, it seems like eventually someone is going to like really figure out how to make that augmented reality glasses thing work and also to make smartwatches somewhat more useful. But um, it, could, it could be something completely different. But the, the core development of the technology is what allows all the different groups of users and all the kinds of applications that we write about in the book to achieve that process of repeatedly remaking the computer as something new, chapter after chapter after chapter. Yeah, I mean, I, I really loved that, that comment you just made about how, you know, there is a separation between kind of the technical possibilities available and then really how it gets made, right? And in an STS scholarship, I mean, this is in some sense the bread and butter of, you know, the, how are the technologies kind of producing, you know, things in the world? And then how are the, you know, the way in which people are just kind of acting in the world and the economics and the social actually then reflecting back and shaping the computer system. And, and that's what I really liked about this one chapter, because, you know, it's kind of about how all of a sudden, you know, as we're talking about the idea of computing goes away, but we're really doing more computing than ever. But then there's this whole underworld of kind of the cloud of server farms where, you know, computing that might look almost like the rooms of the old vacuum tube computers is really still there. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the themes, right? So the book is organized around chapters and each chapter with maybe two exceptions is called the computer becomes something. So chapter one, you know, the computer is invented and it does have this in, in principle, it has this general purpose ability, but in practice, the first computers are not that much more general purpose than something like a cyclotron. They're very large, custom-built pieces of scientific equipment that are used by experts in applied mathematics to do number crunching and simulation. And there are, in the first chapter, at the end of it, there's maybe a few dozen computers in the world. Um, then in the next few chapters, the computer becomes a scientific super tool. It becomes a business data processing device. It becomes a real-time control system. And instead of trying to have each chapter just tell five years in the story of the computer, those chapters each run for maybe 25 years in parallel. But they're looking at how the needs of different groups of users are driving the technology in different directions. So also the computer, as we understand it, is not just hardware. It's a package of hardware, software, uh, skills, expertise, user communities, because the computer in business where it's doing payroll is something very different from, say, scientific computing where they're doing numerical weather simulations, which is different, again, from computers being built into ICBMs um, to guide them to land precisely on 
a point on the other side of the world. So the computer is becoming many different things. But to get back to your point, it never stops being any of them, right? I mean, the first, uh, the second chapter, the computer becomes a scientific super tool, which I guess you know would go particularly with your expertise. The needs of the national labs, uh, particularly Los Alamos, are absolutely crucial uh, for a period of several decades in driving the development of the very highest performing computers. Uh, and that chapter finishes up with the iconic Cray-1 supercomputer. Uh, so those systems cost millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars. A really successful one is going to sell something like 100 copies. Uh, but that's pushing forward certain kinds of architectural innovation. So one of the famous features of the uh, early Cray machine was its use of vector instructions. And by the 90s, Intel is running TV ads, pushing basically similar capabilities, saying, now your desktop processor can do a better job of interpreting video streams because we've got these new instructions that we've added to it. Um, so what gives the book some coherence is that capabilities that are originally developed and added to that core package of computer architecture, hardware, and software in one area will resurface and be reused as the costs come down to do different things by different groups of users, right? So of course, I mean, STS, right? We all want to think about technological determinism, how values get built into technologies, um, which then reproduce those values, you know, the classic Langdon winner, um, artifacts have politics kind of thing. And it's difficult with computing because there are so many different technologies stacked on top of each other. So it's very hard to generalize about what the computer in general is doing, except that it's getting smaller, cheaper, and faster. Um, because, you know, say we're concerned that Facebook is possibly wiping out liberal democracy, right? Which is a reasonable thing to be concerned about. Um, you're not going to find the answer to that by looking at the instruction set of the processor. Um, because if it's got to do with anything, it's probably got to do with some kind of like distributed cloud computing languages and the specifics of capitalism and how Facebook is monetizing things and the cultures. And that is sitting on top of so many different levels of abstraction. On the one hand, Facebook couldn't exist unless the internet existed, unless servers existed, unless virtual machines existed, right? Unless all this technological work had been done um, in all the earlier chapters, which is why I hope that someone who thinks that they only care about Facebook might read this book and realize, oh, you can't just start the story in the 2000s if you want to understand where all that came from. You know, As you said, those cloud computer system uh, data centers look a lot like the scientific computing installations of the 1950s. And it's not a coincidence. There is a direct line there. But on the other hand, you can't you know, only look at one level in that stack you somehow need to try and put those different parts together. And, and that's kind of what we hope for with this book. So the community of people who call themselves historians of computing has grown a lot over the decades, but it's still fairly small. On the other hand, it's hard to think of any scholar basically working on any aspect of the history of the late 20, early 21st century that doesn't come up against computing in some way because whatever you're researching, right, whether it's the history of popular music or fashion or sex work or nuclear physics, right, it's very hard to think of any topic 
people are going to be researching, that the affordances of computer technology aren't important in some way or another. And you can't try and put all of that in one book, right? We have this dreadful problem that the scale just increases so much as we go through the book. Um, but what you can try and do is provide a, a kind of encapsulated, accessible summary of all that context where those technologies and affordances are coming from. Um, Paul's original book is the second most cited book on the history of computing. And so it served that one-stop solution kind of role for a lot of people. And our hope is that this new radically revised and updated book will continue to serve that kind of role for scholars in many different areas, uh, history and SDS, who just want to understand where these core computer technologies come from um, and what the dynamics have been with their evolution over time. So, so I wanted to ask you, I mean, as a, as a historian, I, I imagine there's probably a moment in this history which you find kind of just the most interesting, whether it be for, for, for some, you know, whimsical reason or, or it's, it just feels like an anomaly. I'm curious if, if there's a moment in the history of computing that just strikes you as, as, as particularly worth, worth talking about. Well, I guess my answer to that um, would have changed over time. So the history of personal computing in the late 70s into the early 80s. Um, that was also the generation where I came along personally. I got my first computer, uh, Sinclair ZX81, uh, in 1981 when I was nine years old. Um, so I was exactly this group that was exposed to home computing. And in the existing overview histories of computing, there is essentially no mention whatsoever of home computers or video games. Personal computers get mentioned in the uh, context of the very early machines in the 70s. And basically, the Apple II gets a lot of mention. The IBM PC is treated as pretty much the end of, of that. So um, there's been a lot of work um, in areas, particularly like platform studies, video game studies. Uh, people have uh, started looking at those technologies. Um, and I had that kind of personal connection with them. So it's exciting for me to be able to write those kinds of developments into the overview history of computing. I mean, literally, I think in the two existing standard histories, the Commodore 64 was not mentioned. And that was produced in large numbers by Commodore. It finished up selling for not much more than $100. It was literally the best-selling desktop computer model in history. But I think it had been looked down on a little bit by... Uh, by the kind of historians of the earlier generation. Um, another area where we, I think, break some new ground for overview histories, and in this one, there was not a lot of secondary stuff to draw on, but I, I had some personal expertise. It's the evolution of the IBM PC as a platform. So the existing stories had tended to be perfectly good in describing the original IBM PC, which was introduced in 1981 as one computer model. But Something absolutely fascinating happens with that, that somehow that one computer model becomes basically the template for the entire computer industry. So IBM introduces a few new models, then people start making add-in boards, then the producers of add-in boards um, are able to clone the entire motherboard. And then suddenly you have a whole, you know, whole companies that just make graphics cards, just make hard drives, just make cases. That also facilitates the shift of manufacturing to Asia because the barriers to entry for a company that only makes um, 
input-output cards or only makes computer power supplies are so much lower than one that has to try and engineer and design a whole computer. And IBM itself loses control of that. So IBM in the late 80s introduces some new models that they, they try to protect and demand license fees to copy. And the industry doesn't do that. And instead, suddenly uh, IBM has lost control of its own IBM PC standard. Um, Intel and Microsoft finish up dominating it. So by the late 80s, people are talking about Wintel computers. Uh, but you still have that open kind of platform that was never designed by IBM to be an open platform, but it just kind of evolves. And the 90s are also the period where you have the most dramatic developments in the capabilities of personal computers. So whereas the conventional histories had focused very much on the, the very early part of that story in the 70s, and for me, right, you go into the 1990s and you have a DOS-based computer that's got a powerful processor, but it's not really being tapped to do anything very much except be a faster version of the original PC, um, text-based, single-tasking. Through that 10-year period, first you have this incredible increase in processor power. So from maybe a 25 megahertz chip to a 900 megahertz chip in 10 years, right? The memory goes from maybe one megabyte to I don't know, maybe say 256 megabytes. Um, and the operating system goes from this like creaky 1970s style MS-DOS to um, industrial strength, um, multitasking, extremely sophisticated mini computer derived operating system, um, Windows 2000 which people don't realize this mostly, but the Windows that we've all been using since Windows XP in 2001 has essentially no line of descent from personal computing. It was produced by a uh, mini computer veteran that Microsoft had hired away from DEC. And it basically does the same thing that you know $100,000 mini computers would have been doing back in the uh, mid 1980s. So that, is something that I think uh, has not been generally understood. Now, I must admit my co-author, Paul Ceruzzi, he was always like, do we need to talk so much about the evolution of the case and where the holes go? And like, who cares about these things? And I said, Paul, this is, this is vital. We've got to talk about this. So uh, I don't know if all my readers are excited as I am about that chapter, which is uh, chapter 10 in the book, The PC Becomes a Mini Computer. Uh, but that's one that, that I found interesting. Well, I think what's interesting about, I mean, so thinking about what you just said, I mean, as a computer scientist, we oftentimes are thinking about interoperability, right? The, the, the idea being of how do we have different, um, different systems interact together in, in, a, you know, in, in a good way, whether it be software interacting. And as you mentioned, you know, what happened with IBM was, you know, eventually what got away from them was the ability of different manufacturers to all interact with each other. Um, kind of in a decentralized way through these kind of standards. Yes. Yep. We're just agreed upon. <laughs> right. So other things that happened in the 90s, um, you've got the first standard, right? So the PC goes from being cloning to being standards-based. You have groups like VESA for, for graphics. Um, you have groups that come together, the USB standard, FireWire standard, and so on. So it becomes instead a cluster of um, different, it goes from proprietary machine to de facto standard and eventually a cluster of genuine standards. Um, one of the hardest things to change, um, so the original PC had one outward facing socket on the motherboard 
everything else you had to do with expansion cards. Do you know what the socket was? The only thing you could uh, plug into it. We have to guess a mouse, one of the old. Uh, ah, no, no mouse, no mouse keyboard. They were designed for keyboards. Uh, you wanted a mouse, you had to buy a serial card that was originally designed for a printer or a modem and plug the mouse into that. That's an example of a standard that was designed for one thing. And they were like, hmm, okay, we're going to plug the mouse in somewhere. Uh, let's pretend it's a modem. Um, and that meant that you needed a bunch of expansion cards. So you wanted graphics, you wanted sound, you wanted maybe a printer port, you know, you wanted um, something like a scanner. It's a whole bunch of cards. Uh, and the PC was being hurt there because mini, uh, the makers of graphics workstations, Macintoshes and so on, were able to build lots of capabilities onto the motherboard. So eventually, Intel was able to make, uh, got enough market clout to make a new standard uh, where the, there was this kind of rectangular panel on the back of the box where you could put a whole bunch of ports. And then you were able to build mouse ports, uh, graphics, sound, and so on onto the motherboard and have the connectors stick out. So because of the way the PC industry developed, that business of physically plugging things directly into the motherboard was the hardest thing to change. All the cases you know, were made by specialist companies in Asia. And it was no good a motherboard maker deciding to have an extra hole if the standard case didn't have it. So some big companies like Compaq would order custom-made cases and custom motherboards to go together. But for the PC as a standard, it's a nice example of materiality. Just, you know, in all kinds of areas, you can get backward compatibility with virtuality of one kind or another. Right. So it's no trouble having Windows support DOS programs that you know, go all the way back to DOS 1. It's, you know, you're implementing APIs and system calls and virtual machines. But there's nothing virtual about the back of the case. <laughs> you know, there's either a hole there to plug your mouse in or there isn't. So that actually, I, I've, I tried to look systematically. And I think that business of the hole in the back of the case was the last vestige of the original IBM machines. Um, that finally got standardized and opened up. You know, you had, the, say, to change something like the expansion slots from the original slow 16-bit uh, things to high-speed 32-bit PCI slots. Uh, getting kind of geeky here. Uh, but the point is, that's kind of swapping in one thing for another. Um, so it was a relatively easy change. And that change took place before they were able to do what if IBM was still controlling this as a single unified machine, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do, which is say, we're going to like put three extra holes on the back of the case so you can plug a mouse and a printer directly in. Yeah, I mean, this this is, I mean, that that deserves to be a case study in, in, in materiality for, for, for sure. Um, and it's fascinating because I, I was recently on the market actually for a new computer. And so I, you know, did what any good consumer would do and was reading lots of reviews and, and watching videos. And the biggest thing that was always discussed was actually the ports. I mean, because really the only difference that was really material and unchangeable between computer A and computer B for, for the average user is really just the ports. Yeah. I mean, I've got here, I'm not going to lift it up because we might lose the connection, um, but it's a nice uh, Lenovo X1, you know, thin, light kind of computer. 
and it's very nice. But what it doesn't have is an Ethernet port because the computer is too thin to put a, an actual Ethernet port in, which is, is kind of annoying. They'll sell you some overpriced little dongle for it. Um, but uh, And of course, Apple is famous for aggressively getting rid of ports and then uh, profiting with hugely overpriced dongles. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I yeah, that that's a wonderful case study, um, and I, I, I think so. My, my last question that that I think might be interesting to discuss is, um, is what what are the kind of major forces that that you would say come to mind when you're thinking about computing? I know we discussed this earlier, um, but you know, I'm sort of thinking about big picture topics, right? We can think about government funding. We could think about the scientific community. We could think about the defense community, um, personal community, and just the market. Um, you know, does it strike you that at different times in the histories there are certain drivers above others, or um, yeah, what's your view? I mean, in a way, with our chapter structure, that lets us break it up in terms of the the groups of users. But to be clear, when we say users here, we don't necessarily mean individuals. Right. So the U.S. Army, um, the Census Bureau, big corporations, particularly in the early chapters, those users are almost always institutional users, not individuals. Like the people who are physically working hands-on with computers in the 50s and 60s are not called users, they're called operators. And you know, in as much as you can identify a user that has agency, it's primarily on the institutional level. So. Certainly, the government funding is something that's absolutely vital and I think runs very clearly through particularly the first half of the book. So ENIAC, the first programmable electronic computer, is built at the University of Pennsylvania during World War II under contract to the Ballistics Research Lab, which is part of the U.S. Army. And in fact, almost all the one-off computers of the 1940s, of which there are a couple dozen, um, are paid for in one way or another by the government. Then a commercial market starts to develop um, into the 50s. But if you look at the first computer models from Univac and IBM, pretty much all the companies that are buying them are either government agencies or they have defense contracts to do aerospace Cold War things with the federal government. Uh, the market develops further with administrative and civilian applications into the late 50s. But we talk about in Chapter 4 on real-time control systems, the SAGE Air Defense Network, which has had some great historical attention paid to it. And IBM in the 50s was getting, despite having a thriving general purpose computer business, was getting more of its revenues and profits from these special government contracts to build defense things than it was from selling general purpose computers. So that's a huge subsidy in the 50s. When you get into the 60s, of course, everyone knows about DARPA and the ARPANET, which leads directly to the internet. Um, but ARPA and DARPA are also funding research in things like computer graphics and time sharing that's fundamental to changing the core affordances of computing and how they're used. And of course, silicon chips are first deployed in missile guidance systems and aerospace projects. So the government is also underwriting the founding of Silicon Valley. Um, elsewhere in the book, we talk about technologies like database management systems, risk chips, uh, graphics processes, and so on where the crucial early developments are supported directly by research grants and or military contracts. 
Um, and although the U.S. is the biggest player in this, we also try and try to bring in the rest of the world to the extent that we can. So obviously CERN and the development of the World Wide Web uh, is a crucial part in the history of computing. Uh, the first widely developed network systems used by ordinary people were the Minitel terminals in France, which was a direct government project, um, etc. So that's clearly a vital part of it. Um, then there's a bit of a shift when we get to chapter seven, the, the computer becomes a personal plaything, um, where we do start talking about the personal computing story. Uh, actually, starting out with programmable calculators, personal computers, home computers, and video games. And in a way, all those things and so much of what comes next is just a question of working out the affordances of, now we have a microprocessor, a bit of RAM, some code on a ROM chip, uh, some kind of input-out device, maybe a screen, what can we make with it? And they make business computers, they make terminals, they make word processing machines, they make programmable calculators, they make speak and spell devices, uh, they make arcade video game cabinets, they make home games consoles. So it's that kind of core little cluster of technologies that get used in many different ways. And, and that's maybe the part in the story where the agency of uh, individuals like hobbyists and tinkerers and so on is is more important. Um, although it's also those early computers are kind of useless for most of the people who buy them. Um, I mean, the first wave of electronics tinkerers who may be building their own boards, you know, they don't really care, right? They know, you know, that other stuff that they've been building in their basements wasn't useful either, but they they like doing it. You know, they weren't really solving many practical problems by playing around with shortwave radio, you know, right? It's just loving the machine for itself, the classic kind of hacker philosophy. Uh, but then you get this interesting thing in the, in terms of what's driving it. There is this general widespread hype for the idea of a post-industrial society or a computer revolution uh, around in the late 70s, early 80s. And particularly in Britain, where the Thatcher government is quite aggressive in deindustrializing, you know, conventional industries, uh, there's the idea there that the future is all going to be about doing things with microprocessors and computers. So everybody, uh, the uh, BBC, the national broadcaster, is pushing the idea of computer literacy. One of the machines we write about is the BBC microcomputer. <laughs> so, I mean, the BBC is kind of government-backed, not exactly the government. But they, they put their official name and backing on a commercial product, which is then supposed to be the standard thing that people will buy and use in schools and so on. Um, and, and the machines are basically useless, right? I mean, they have to try and figure out what, I mean, the question's there, right? You've obviously got the idea, though, now we have a home computer. That's kind of a historical discontinuity. So first off, what kind of computer is going to fit in your home? So it's got to be a, a cheaper box that plugs into a cassette recorder, that plugs into a television, right? It's not going to get a giant tape drive. It's not going to get an enormous, you know, industrial printer. But then there's also a question, what kind of home needs a computer? And no one really has a good answer to that question. So it was real fun going back and looking at the advertising because on the one hand, you've got the story there, the future is coming for you. And if you want your children to have any chance of thriving in the new in the new world, they need to be computer literate, which means they need to know how to program. On the other hand, the advertising and the messages, it's incredibly backward looking, right? I mean, this is a period where 
nuclear families are becoming much less something that's perceived as the default, um, right? Particularly your kind of classic sitcom, two straight parent white couples, right? That is becoming increasingly less representative of what American families actually look like. But the advertising, it's always this sitcom family, you know, sitting together around the computer in the living room. And, and what they're doing with it, well, it's educational programs, but, you know, they're keeping recipe databases. They're supposed to be writing programs themselves to do their taxes with, um, et cetera. So they're, they're kind of useless from a practical viewpoint. They're also embedding that increasingly unrealistic idea of what a family even looks like. Um, so the technology is kind of important in the end, but in retrospect, you go back to this era where people are buying books or magazines and typing in programs and they're supposed to be calculating their biorhythms and you know having the computer track which children are doing the chores. And you think like, why did anybody like ever think this made sense? Um, yeah, no, I that's I that experience of kind of writing and hacking and, and useless programs, of course, um, you know, I, most computer scientists, I imagine, have some sort of childhood story very similar to that. Of course, I of course, I do. I remember building um, a, a phone app to uh, store your location as if at the time that was needed, <laughs> as if like you, you storing one you know thing would be useful. But it was more about, as you said, the kind of literacy and, you know, and so we're, we're running out of time and I, I just want to have a chance to ask you, um, you know, what are you working on? What's what's next for um, for this project or do you see in the kind of history of computing? Oh, yes. Yeah. So one of the things I'm doing with, um, so I think, essentially adopted by some media studies scholars in Germany. That's why the um, visiting appointment there. Uh, and that's reflected somewhat in this book because we do try and take seriously fax machines and um, iPods and other kinds of computers that people don't realize are computers that go along with this digitization of media. So we have a project um, that is in part an edited book, but I'm making a strong uh, personal contribution to it with several chapters um, that's trying to historicize this idea of digitality. Right. Mm. And one of the things you may have noticed is, I mean, for a while, people talked about the computer revolution and then they talked a whole bunch about the information age. Um, but now it's all digital. Right. So digital has become this big, vague hand waving term that somehow means computers and networks. But it also somehow means immateriality. Right. Like. Uh, to an extent that it even doesn't necessarily make sense technically anymore. So I'm sure you know what you know digital actually means. But tell me. What do you make of the PlayStation 5 digital edition? Right? Is that right. what's that telling us about all the other PlayStations? <laughs> that <laughs> so they're not they're not really analog, are they? Right? But right, somehow right. digital is being redefined to mean invisible or immaterial. And that's another area where I think the history of computing, where we know where this idea of digital analog originally came from back in the 1940s and how it got extended to other kinds of technology and what it meant back when there were analog computers or what what they really mean. Um, so bringing some kind of historical rigorous perspective to this 
and looking at the history both of the technologies that would later be considered digital, which includes some non-computer things like punch card machines and mechanical calculators and so on, um, but also the history of where this idea of digitality comes from and how it changes over time, uh, I think is really exciting and will be a nice complement to this uh, current book that has been more focused on the computer technology itself. All right. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and uh, hopefully, if that comes out as a book anytime soon, I will have you back on the show to to discuss it. Uh, I've been talking with uh, uh, Professor Thomas Haig uh, about his new book from MIT Press, A New History of Modern Computing. Uh, thank you for your time. Hi. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Austin. Uh, thank you for having me.